This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. Friends, as we all know, life in the modern world can be pretty tough sometimes. Whether it's that overwhelmed feeling caused by the 24-hour news cycle or that exhausted keeping up with the Joneses marathon that many people feel like they're running on a daily basis, or simply trying to get by day in and day out. The good news is that there are now platforms designed to provide us with the support we need. Our sponsor, BetterHelp, is a wonderful resource that's purposely designed to be accessible and personalized to your exact specifications. With the click of a button, you can sign up and be matched with a professional of the highest standards, a specialist that can be an unbiased support system throughout your week and beyond. And BetterHelp goes out of its way to ensure that your needs are met. If the professional you're matched up with isn't working out, BetterHelp will work tirelessly to match you up with someone who will. Here at 20-Sided Gamified, we fully and readily support our listeners' goals of living healthy, fulfilling lives filled with laughter, fun, gaming, and stories to pass on from generation to generation. We are proud to have a partnership with BetterHelp, and we hope you'll look into this wonderful opportunity and resource at a time where we all may need a little boost. Signing up for BetterHelp has never been easier. Go to betterhelp.com slash 20sidedgamified to learn more and sign up at a 10% discount for your first month. You can also gain access to BetterHelp through the link provided in our show notes. Thank you so much. All right, 20-Sided Gamified podcast fans. Hello, this is Jared here. Your, uh, I don't know, always host. Uh, but thankfully, because I often feel alone now when he is not present, but uh, Kelly McManus is here. Kelly, <laughs> good evening. Good evening. You're throwing a little shade there. <laughs> shade? I was being kind. I mean, I mean was... that is kindness. I no, but it is that. true, though. I, yeah. it's, it's a little lonely when you're not around. So I, I mean, mean, I miss I'm... not being here when I'm not here. You yeah. know, this it, is, by the way... It stresses me. Oh, I'm sure. This is going to be a little bit of a weird episode, just in the sense that uh, we almost never record in the evening. But trust me, um, when you have a guest like the one that we're going to have on right now, who's in a different time zone, it is absolutely worth it. So, you, so we'll, he's smiling right now, so that means uh, we're doing well so far. Kelly, but before we start, Kelly McManus, um, how are we doing? Did you have doing a good fine. Oh, yeah, perfect. Give me, a, give me a highlight. Highlight painting. <laughs> yeah. Always painting miniatures. Always painting. Yeah, and what are you working on this weekend? Um, or? Some uh, Legion Vistula, Vistula um, Lancers. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the old put, uh, Napoleonic Imperial Guard. They have to get done. <laughs> yeah, I have a unit of them in one of my armies. So there you go. They're very pretty, but intricate, intricate design, right? I've spent most of the day painting. Uh, Was it like twelve of these? It's yeah. It's a time sink. Yeah. No, I hear you. Uh, what so, about you? I'm good, man. No, yeah. I'm really good. So good. I won't lie, though. I mean, basically most of the weekend because I am old now. Most of my weekend was recovering from seeing Tool at Madison Square Garden on Friday night. It was an unbelievable show. But 
the wife and I decided that as soon as it was over, we were going to make two hour trek to the, uh, the hills where our home is in Connecticut. So it was, uh, you know, I haven't pulled a, uh, you know, a late night like that in a long time. So it was great though. It was totally worth it. So That's awesome. Yes, it was great. And then, uh, yeah, I did a little painting this weekend. Uh, my kids have midterms next week. So, um, you know, had to do a, a, a little bit of work there, you know? I, I know my life sounds so exciting. <laughs> Kelly, you don't even have a retort. Like, I don't. I'm sure. Well, our I'm ga- just thinking I, about like you know you're you're all you're not all night or late nights. Like that's going to be our trip to link uh, London. I know. I, I know. don't know how I'm going to do it with that psychopath uh, Titch White. So I don't know. You haven't got a chance to spend a weekend with him yet. So no, that should be good. Thanks, Titch, we thanks. love you though. If I you're think out it's there. a good thing. Maybe I have my own hotel room somewhere. Else. Yes, this is true. It's probably a good thing. So, all right. No more, no more small talk. I think, yeah. I think that's because uh, we have uh, a very exciting guest um, in so many, so many different ways. And this is the truth. So here we go. Right. Um, I'm going to introduce him momentarily, but the truth is this. So I have a ton of books at home on game-based learning. Um, game-based learning is something that's really important to me. Right. I do it at the secondary level. Um, I find that most people that do it, though. It it does kind of happen at the university level, including all the research and the writing and all of that. So on occasion, um, when I'm thinking about, you know, guests, I'll do, do a little research, you know, online. And I came across a name and I was sort of like, I know that name from somewhere. And it turned out that I owned a couple of his books. And it's with great honor, I would say, you know. Um, again, he's laughing, right? Because we are uh, going to inflate his ego, by the way, his life sounds like the life of almost like a secret agent or something. So you'll you'll get that vibe, trust me, because we did before we came on to record. But here we go, here we go, right? So uh, Dr. Matthew Farber, right? He's an associate professor of educational technology at the University of Northern Colorado. He's the founder of uh, Gaming SEL Lab, which I'm sure he'll uh, talk about. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. And I, I don't know, I mean, to say that this gentleman has published a number of texts, numerous texts on what game-based learning is, it's kind of an understatement. I mean, if you Google his name, you know, if you, and you, you should do this, right? Google, you know, Dr. Matthew Farber and then just type in gaming and he will pop up all over the place. And clearly uh, he's a, uh, you know, I would say an important person in terms of getting the word out there about what game-based learning really is, especially if you're a teacher who might be interested in games, but you might never have, you know, kind of mustered up the courage to kind of design something. Um, I would say that, you know, uh, Matt's Matt's books would be very helpful in terms of getting that ball rolling. So on that note, uh, he told us it's cool if we call him Matthew or Matt. So, hey, Matt. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, no problem. Hopefully that was that intro wasn't too long-winded for you, I hope. That's <laughs> no, all good. No, it's good. <laughs> all right, so... So Matt, I, again, anytime I bring a guest on for the first time, I do think it's super important to give the audience just a sense of um, of who you are. So maybe in in, in its most simple form, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know maybe yourself and where you're from? I was about I know, to say sometimes human, the simplest questions are the toughest. <laughs> human and Earth, <laughs> love it. I, <laughs> and uh, no, I am. Uh, I'm Matt Farber. I'm uh, actually originally, uh, we don't like telling people this, just kidding, but originally from the East Coast. Uh, So I, so sometimes I joke that we are not a secret agent, but in witness relocation here in Colorado. 
<laughs> right out of a Scorsese movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where they put ketchup on pizza on uh, spaghetti. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's literally a good follow, Goodfellas line, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I'm a former social studies teacher. I taught for a decade. I taught middle school social studies, um, and I uh, I um, got the uh, bitten by the bug for games in the classroom at the same time that the uh, recently passed. Sandra Day O'Connor uh, started what was called Our Courts just for a few months, okay. which then became iCivics. And uh, iCivics, I remember students playing uh, this game called Do I Have a Right, which has been updated. It's got another version in Spanish, and it's about being a lawyer in a, uh, in a uh, uh, Bill of Rights-themed law firm. So all the cases seem to have to do with, you know, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, and so on. And uh, it sort of looks like Diner Dash in its day, you know. But I remember students would come back the next day and tell me that they played it again and they played it again. And, you know, that just never happened to the worksheet. I know, dude. It's so (laughs) true. (laughs) And I also noticed that, like, some of their curriculum was also really good. It seemed like a game, you know. There was one, I I think this material still exists. I'm still part of the iCivics Educator Network. And um, one was uh, called... Uh, what's for lunch? Separation of powers, and you split the class in three groups. And it was like the the nutrition ec- inspectors, the menu writers, and the head chef or lead chef. And you write a menu, uh, but it has to be good and healthy. But nobody defines that. Yeah. And then when they're done, it's like, oh, aha! You're just doing the uh, separation of powers and parts of government. And to me, that felt like a game too. And all of those like meaningful lessons. Uh, really got me down this pathway here of learning in games. Uh, it's interesting. Sandra Day O'Connor uh, had to retire from the bench for personal reasons uh, from, I think, her husband at the time. Uh, but mm-hmm. And then around that time is when she founded iCivics. And she said that's her greatest legacy. Not that she was the first female Supreme Court justice, which, of course, is you know historical and, again, recently in the news as after she passed but the founding of iCivics, she considers it's a it's a quote. I'm not just saying that <laughs> to be no, her no, we believe legacy. you. Yeah, and it's because of the engagement of getting kids into into uh, civics, and that became part of my master's thesis at the time because I was putting the dots together that civics and civics in, in a democracy requires participation. Uh, it just doesn't happen on its own. Right. Right. That's what a dictatorship is. Uh, there's no democracy unless everybody goes and votes. Uh, we're speaking today at the same time as the Iowa caucus, which I still don't understand how that works. But <laughs> I don't think many people do. Even no, right? people with doctorates in government, essentially. No, it's never been properly explained, right? Yeah. But like, I guess if you live in Iowa, you know it, right? But people go out and they're doing democracy, right? And I think there was an interesting parallel to me about how civic engagement can be boosted that way. And that led me down the pathway to eventually get my advanced degree in educational technology and and reach even more teachers now uh, because I'm in a school of teacher education. Oh, okay. At Northern Colorado. Go Bears. No, absolutely. So (laughs) really quickly, for those folks out there that whether they're teachers or not, could you describe what educational technology is? Meaning like your classroom, when teachers come in to learn from you, what does that look like? Oh boy, these are great questions. You're only giving me an hour? 
Just kidding. Yeah, well, you know what? I, <laughs> no, I, joking, I, I, that's a disclaimer at the beginning. But if it's a good episode, usually Let's those go, go a little longer. Yeah, we can go, you know. Uh, um, also, if uh, I don't know how to ask a question, it's a real problem. Because oh, yeah. I've been teaching a long time, too. So it's like, uh-oh, if I don't know how to do that. so But go for it. We digress. Yeah. I could Socratic you right back, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, Edu- I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? Yeah, and no, just like so, educational. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, educational technology, right? So, what yeah. does that look like? You know, when teachers come in, they're learning from you. Um, what does okay. that What does that classroom look like? Yeah, great question. Because I think about this often in ed tech circles, and yeah, I asked students this in the first. We we're starting the semester now, right? Uh, like a week ago, we did, um, and that's I teach the undergraduate students. Um, who are going to be elementary education. I also teach courses in secondary education uh, using educational technology. It's the integrating classroom. Yep. And then I teach our, in our master's and our PhD level program. But I'll really speak to the uh, master's, uh, sorry, the undergraduates, the pre-service teachers, uh, because Northern Colorado, uh, we are founded as a, uh, as a school of teacher education and we're the largest in the state. Of, of, of teachers. And I asked my students that very question. We have uh, different activities about that. And, um, you know, I'm a member of ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. And so I asked them to define that. And uh, I, actually, I actually show, when they're done, we have a discussion. I show them Steve Jobs' grainy video from when he was at, like maybe at Pixar, it's like these next computers around. And it's super corny, but it's really powerful. And he talks about um, humans as far as their power of locomotion uh, and compared to the condor. The condor is all the way on the top, humans in the bottom. Right. Um, but on a bicycle, the human outspeeds everybody. And his famous quote is that a computer is like I for, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's a, like a mind and a bicycle, basically. Right. And I think that's a powerful metaphor. Um, and I, I, put, I get my foot in the door uh, with students who may be a little bit hesitant to use technology in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, with, with that powerful fact that um, their educational tools are multimodal. So you get images, text, um, you know, video, all these yeah. things happening at once. So there's multiple entry points to accessing and to boosting literacy. Um, there's, you know, like Desmos, let's say, the online math textbook. I know my son uses that in his class. It's much different than a, a workbook. It's not some sort of Skinner box, you know. You see the equations work on the screen. Um, so technology is a tool, right? That's yes. how it's often... Scribe. I shared the other anecdote with them about uh, Socrates. Um, and Socrates was not for writing stuff down. I know, right? dude, you're, yeah, you're beat. Yeah. I was literally going to bring that up, but keep going. <laughs> right. And, if, you know, because you couldn't argue well if you write things down. And I know this for a fact because we have this gamified, um, gamified Socratic circle called Socratic Smackdown that was developed yes. by the Institute of Play. <laughs> I have my students do that, right? But I, don't, I, I still recall 
getting questions from uh, Socrates and Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very clever. All the all, almost all the interactions are a question back to the player. Yeah, I <laughs> um, think technology's scary to a lot of teachers. And again, but, I don't even mean that negatively, but that is literally what I every time look. I don't know if you ran into this or not, but you know, weeks ago, um, you know, we had the ChatGPT talk, and everybody yeah. is just petrified of it, and I can understand why, but. Again, like for me, I literally use that same example. Teachers have always kind of fought against different forms of technology because it's, I don't know. I mean, we could probably go off on a big tangent about this. Um, but the bottom line is, I think to some extent, the way in which we learned sometimes is so ingrained in us that we want to teach that way. Not realizing that the next generation is just living in a very, very, very different world than we might be living in. So I use right. that quote all the time, the Socrates thing. So go for it. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, I, I leads them to this interactive timeline, which of course you couldn't do on paper, also, right? Right. Um, but one thing I tell them right off is that if we didn't write things down, writing is technology. Right. So if we didn't write down that, we wouldn't know Socrates was even critiquing writing. Of course, so there's yeah. that irony and paradox. Is that irony? I don't know. Using that right, but um, I go back yeah. to like um, there's a whole you know there's educational technology. It's been around for a while. I speak a lot about to students with students about um, Sesame Street and how educational television was was that's the educational technology that I was raised on, right? Until like Oregon Trail and other games came along and. Coding and basic or programming, as we called it, right? Uh, but definitely educational television. Um, but yeah, there's that same history. You know, we've had that with um, comic books. Yep. Right? And now now we'll call them graphic novels. And they're a, another gateway to literacy because graphic novels are novels, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think they probably just use that title to make them sound more sophisticated. But they're basically comics. Yeah. So. And I think... Um, and. Uh, Another thing to profess is that um, some games are ed tech tools. Like Minecraft in creative mode would be an educational technology tool. But some games, many games, almost most games, I would argue are not ed tech tools. I would I argue and write often as them as a form of powerful media. They're interactive, but all media is interactive. You know, you bring yourself to your to a, a book or a film when you when you react to it, right? Sure. Um, and you make decisions along the way. You don't have to finish it. Choose your own adventure, right? You can also jump around pages. Um, but you are also playing with ideas as you read. Uh, there's a there's a famous um, a famous scholar on children's literature, Perry Nodelman, and he writes that all novels are puzzles. All novels are basically like games because the author, like in Dungeons and Dragons, knows the whole story and just giving you little pieces along the way, right? A murder mystery does that. So I think it's uh, really important to embrace games differently, um, to look at them in different genres because a dictionary is a book and so is Lord of the Rings. And so is a Nat Geo book, you know, just because there's words in a page, right? But in schools, it tends to be turning them into instruments or tools. Right. 
right? And we don't really do that with books anymore. We used to do that with books called Dick and Jane books, right? And there's an anecdote. I don't know if you want me to get into the anecdote. Sure, but... go for it. Yeah, this okay, is your time, sure. my friend. So yeah, awesome. anecdote right. away. Great. <laughs> uh, I love this anecdote. I was, it was actually in part of another book, but it went into the weeds, so I can, I can share it here. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, do it. Yeah, so uh, as the story goes, and I read a, uh, I forgot the author's name. It's a really good book about Dr. Seuss. And the same author wrote a great book about George Lucas and Jim Henson. So maybe if you Google all three, you'll see his name. <laughs> and uh, highly recommend it. The book's really long, but... Anyway, um, shout out to the author. So uh, Dr. Seuss at the time was challenged by uh, Bennett Cerf. And Bennett Cerf was starting um, a a publishing house called Random House. And Beginner Books is what that was. And even before that, John Hersey, who wrote uh, a best-selling novelist in the 1950s, wrote uh, a challenge that why are children's books so boring? Like Dick, see Dick run, see Jane run, mm-hmm. see Dick and Jane. Who cares, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, he put a challenge out there and in a Life magazine article and uh, Dr. Seuss responded and uh, there was a word list, um, maybe jumbling the story a little bit, but um, Bennett Surf had like this, this uh, improved word list of vocabulary. And he looked at that as a set of constraints, right? And that's where Cat in the Hat came from. And mm. Bennett Surf, under Beginner Books, publishes uh, Cat in the Hat. And with, I think, I might be wrong, but it's like maybe it's Houghton Mifflin or another big publisher was going to have an EDU version. And that failed. Schools were stuck in Dick and Jane land for another like decade. But at home, at Christmas, when it came out, parents were buying uh, Cat in the Hat books, right? And now there's like, you know, Dr. Seuss Day and everything like that, right? Because oh, yeah. we read commercial books, off-the-shelf books. I know there's book bans, even with dictionaries and all things happening now. But more broadly speaking, though, we read commercial books, whatever the canon is, in classrooms. We're not reading Dick and Jane. But a lot of Games still seemed, even the good ones to me, even with the ones that are what we call balanced games, where what the player does is what you're supposed to be like, you know, teaching, um, still comes off a bit more like a Dick and Jane book to me. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Uh, what you what what you're describing, what it reminds me of, are just poorly done games. Where, for example, as a teacher, you go and find some module out there in which. I don't know, off the top of my head, you really want your students to understand the French Revolution and they all get a role and they have to learn about them and they have to do exactly what those characters did. And at that point, it's like, yeah, this is not really fun and it's not really a game. That's what it reminds me of. I don't know if that's exactly where you're headed, but that's that's, what it sounds like to me. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, You know, uh, and uh, so I just wrote a manuscript with Tracy Fullerton at USC and she runs um, the Game Innovation Lab there. And... Her book um, is um, Game Design Workshop. is mm-hmm. all about play-centric design. And, you know, it, you, you have to give the player free. That's what play happens within the constraints of a game. So you have to give the player freedom. If it's too rote, right, then... But on the flip side... <laughs> yeah, yeah, always I the flip think, side. 
Yeah, on the flip side, I always think of the Jack Black character in High Fidelity. You know, the record Amazing movie. Stuff. Oh, yeah. And right? John Cusack, right? Yeah. The classic. And uh, I'm pretty excited. Side note, John Cusack is on tour uh, screening Say Anything and then doing a Q&A yeah. afterwards. And we got tickets awesome. for that. In My May. wife <laughs> loves John Cusack. Absolutely loves him. I have to say, I know we're... Hopefully, uh, hopefully our listeners are not upset with us. I love Gross Point Blank. Have you ever seen oh, that? Great, of it's course, a yeah. Classic. I'm afraid yeah. to ask you, Kelly, because we are that. certainly. I know you have. <laughs> we are of a certain generation here, Kelly. Okay, I know. I know who uh, John Cusack. Please write down them, but... that you need to see Gross Point Blank. Okay. If you can Google it right now. Yes, absolutely. Oh, by the <laughs> way, wait. So, Matt, I I think I might have missed this. So, you said you and your wife have tickets to go see him. Yeah, he's going oh, to be that's exciting. right here in town. They're going to screen Say Anything, and then he's going to answer Q&A for a couple hours. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Super excited. Um, but yeah, I think um, like uh, in Jack Black in uh, High Fidelity, he was like that record store snob. Like, you know, like, don't buy that record, right? Remember? like, in- Oh, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Critiquing he's a great Stevie character. Wonders that's, honestly, work. that'd probably be me. If I worked <laughs> at a record store, that would be me. Like looking down my nose at people and trying to get them to buy, you know, the stuff that I like more than likely. <laughs> right, and it's I, I I think there's a lot of those things that happen with games in classrooms. And for instance, there are people who don't like it, people in the world of games, not game based learning, but game design itself, that are really against gamification. Yeah, there are people that say. They see Kahoot or Jim Kit or Kim Kit or like Blooklet, those quiz mm-hmm. games that are essentially a quiz with a timer and music. Yeah. And they're like, those are not the games we're talking about. But to me, I think if you're going to be like Jack Black and High Fidelity and, and put your nose up, I, I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't sit well with me. I think that anytime you're engendering play in a classroom, Maybe that's the teacher saying, like, when I started using iCivics in the classroom. Mm-hmm. That I mean, those are great games, but they're not, like, same level as, like, being immersed in Assassin's Creed in ancient Greece, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think any anytime you're engendering play in the classroom, it's a win for everybody. And yeah. let's see where that takes everybody. Yeah, I think that makes I think that makes total sense. And again, like nobody wants to be railroaded into something, right? And I and again, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure if that's where you're headed with it. But again, what it reminds me of is, you know, when whether you're a teacher using some kind of game based learning method in your classroom because you want to push the kids in a certain direction, or if you're just running a D and D game and you're one of those GMs that you kind of don't let the players do what they want, you kind of make them do what you want. That's yeah. a problem to me. And again, I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but that's what I hear. You know? Well, again, so. I think it goes back to um, there are just so many games. I mean, there's books, oh, I know. chapters, yeah. just defining play. I, I consider myself a play theorist. I guess I can at this point. A big part of my dissertation and book I just wrote and co-wrote, sorry, and with Tracy. And um, I, I was just thinking about my dissertation, work mm-hmm. on like different types of play theorists. But there are whole books just about games and what games are. But yeah. it's like that with books, film, right? Yeah. You know, if you look at uh, so all of these approaches can work. I don't know. Yeah. There's not like one unified thing. Um, and when uh, Tracy and I were writing this other book, and we're not really disclosing what we wrote the book about, 
<laughs> but no, I know it, that's what you were saying earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's me being a spy, but we did, we yeah. did, we did tread carefully to say that like our ideas aren't saying your ideas are not worthwhile. <laughs> right. By no, any means. I gotcha. Yeah. So, so let me ask you something. So I, again, I like to do this on the show of just trying to bring everything together. So, I mean, I definitely have a good sense of how you think about games. I think at this point, I, and I, I'm definitely getting a good vibe for, especially like how you see games kind of in the classroom. And I, I wanted to go back for a second. So mm-hmm. if, even before you decided that you wanted to be, you know, a middle school teacher, and even before you decided you wanted to do like professional work on educational games, I mean, were you a gamer growing up? Did you like games? Like, and if so, um, what were you into? Yeah, so I think I predate the word gamer. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do I. So yeah, I get yeah. it. <laughs> there we go. Um, so I, I, but I did reflect back on this sort of thing. So I, I did play games in, in our house. Like our family would play Scrabble, right? Monopoly. Scrabble was a big one, right? Yeah. Um, I think the people that are like new to like Euro games and that sort of thing, I think Scrabble is a pretty good one to say because it's much more open, I guess, you know? Yeah. Um, as, a, you know, as playing the game. Um, but I also read a lot of uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books and uh, I had a, um, we played Dungeons and Dragons like in the really early 80s. Like when it was on ET, I was already playing at that point. So nice. You know, um, so there was a lot of that. And I, I guess my parents were pretty like uh, okay with me getting like the monster manual and like all these like crazy covers. Oh, my dog wants to be. <laughs> the dog is interested in the podcast. I my guess. dog is very. Or maybe in- maybe the dog is interested in uh, probably my next question was. I guess it sounds like you basically lived through the day and age in which uh, you know parents and teachers thought that D and D was the devil that you were going to end up like a satanic uh, in a yeah, satanic cult by that. gaming. I remember watching Mazes and Monsters on TV with Tom Hanks. Yeah, where uh, it's an awful movie. <laughs> I think I watched it because. It was such a knockoff of Dungeons and Dragons, and I, I liked Bosom Buddies at the time. Yeah. And he was like, you know, he couldn't distinguish like the real life and role playing, which was like so super weird. But my household was not like that. They were just like, yeah, sure, there's some like, you know, some like satanic looking monster on the cover. But, you know, my uh, parents were teachers. So mm-hmm. if you go, th- I mean, we know this now that the, Dungeons and Dragons books are such a high reading level. Oh, yeah. You know, like, why would you say no to that? It almost seems, you know, ludicrous at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, learning rules in general, it's almost yeah. like it's a language unto itself, right? And I think that, look, it's not a surprise to me. I don't know what your experience was, because I taught middle school for 13 years before I moved up. I, I always, share an anecdote. Yeah, I, I always found that, you know, the kids that, that gamed in the club, they were just firing on all cylinders by the time they were in high school. Because, I, I think because of gaming. I um, found, this is like, this is not like, you know, scholarly research here, but anecdotal when I was teaching in middle school, we, we did, a, um, we covered the Columbian Exchange, right? Which is like, you know, Corn and uh, typhus and small. Yeah, my kids have a midterm. I'm on it tomorrow. <laughs> oh no way! Right? Oh yeah. And there's that image, you know, that image with the arrows, and I could stare. Yep. I remember staring at that blankly, and nothing would sink in, you know. Uh, and 
Um, I decided at the time to, there is actually a game called Survive and Thrive that was developed at Quest to Learn that later on I had students play. But at this time, I broke the room up into four centers, learning centers, you know, and this is seventh grade. And uh, one was like Brain Pop on, on um, Columbian Exchange. One was PBS Learning Media on um, the Columbian Exchange, a little essay prompt, right? Uh, there was another one on, also from Brain Pop, but it was about, I think it was about the Zika virus at the time. So it's like a modern version of showing how things travel. So nice comparison there. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. And then the fourth station was the board game Pandemic, which oh, students had never seen before. Right. And if I, I mean, I don't know if I should describe it or not, but it's like a European style board game. And it's from Matt Leacock. And it's like a, you know, almost like a, like a legend at this point. Right. And you, it's a cooperative game and not like everybody gets a soccer trophy, but you almost, you're, it's a, it's, um, what is the term for that? A symmetrical roles. Yeah. The roles, right. Like yeah, the, uh, I, I would, I would describe it that way. Right, so everybody gets a role, and like one player can do one thing. Like the quarantine expert can only do, uh, you know, can do one thing. The pilot, I forgot that what that's called, can do can move pawns around, but the other players can't do that. So you must all work together, and the virus keeps like growing and spreading, and you have to play, and it's really difficult. The rule book on that is like twenty pages long, and I would put it down. I would see the board at four times a day. And students would linger after class until that last card was pulled. And yeah. there were students that had different IEPs and 504s, particularly the ones with IEPs, the individual um, education plan, individualized education plans, the, some of the special education students. And they were the ones that were almost always running the game. And I remember going to I, IEP meetings, the child study team meetings, and I would have a completely different outlook on that child. Because I was like, oh, no, no, they're going to be fine. <laughs> you know, I was yeah, like uh, yeah. thinking so many moves ahead. And I also remember I would show a map of um, the Silk Road. And I said, <laughs> and they were like, oh, that's the Black Death. That's how that moved through there, right? They internalized systems thinking of the game. They understood, you know, I mean, when the pandemic for real happened here, I... <laughs> I also chatted with Matt Leacock for a little bit, uh, the designer of the game. But I, we also, as a family, sat down and played the game. Yeah. And that way we can understand. You know, my son was 13 now, so I feel like we've been in the pandemic for 23 years now. But <laughs> right. <laughs> at the time, it was like, oh, this is why, you know, because you could yeah. understand that, no, that I, ripple effect. Yeah, Kelly, go for it, dude. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, what other games influence... Uh, your your in class teaching, but also like some of the writings that you've done, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. So uh, one of the one of the other ones was uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, and um, I just liked how that game was so light. So it's it's the same as Werewolf or Mafia, yeah. or any game like that where you close your eyes, you get tapped on the shoulder, and you have to guess who that person is. So I I would have this, and it's great because it's a large group game and it's fun, you know. So I had students come in and we would play right off, like eight, and we would fishbowl it, right? So it would be in the middle of the class. So, and um, they would play. And then I would say, when they were done, I would say, uh, how did that make you feel? How did it feel to have to lie on purpose, mm. right? Or to, to have to bluff or, you know, throw shade at another student or friend? Like, how was that? 
And then I would then lead them like, like I don't want to say like Socrates, but in a <laughs> Socratic way to uh, the Salem witch trials, right? And they immediately got it. And then I, sh- this is seventh grade. So this is an interesting, I guess it's a state thing. I don't know. But I showed them, uh, I got a whole bunch of different books, graphic novels, but also Arthur, um, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Hmm. Now, when I was teaching in New Jersey at the time, that book's not used, I think, until like 10th or 11th grade. Yeah. Uh, my son just finished it. He's in seventh grade here. He goes to a school that's modeled on like, sort of like modeled on high tech high. If you've ever seen the movie, most likely to succeed, it's very much like that. So they, they read it in seventh grade. So I don't know why we're doing this different here in Colorado. But at the time, um, I had challenged the students. I said, here's some index cards, you know. I want you to remake One Night Ultimate Werewolf, but about characters in the Salem Witch Trial. So that's when game-based learning became project-based learning. That's when, see what happened with iCivics was, I wanted, do I have a right, that game from iCivics, 179 more times to fill the whole school year. And it just, it'll never exist. But I realized (laughs) Minecraft has survival mode, that's playing werewolf, and creative mode, making it, right? So I, had, I said, well, there's the books, here's some cards, and um, we're going to play test it, right? I use materials that are now on Games for Changes, website, student challenge, you know, play testing, and they dug right into the book. And um, one game I remember was called Witches and Snitches. And they would ask me, like, <laughs> can I change the role of a character, you know? And uh, I was like, yeah, sure. So they added a judge, so you have to plea your case. And it was like, what would Rebecca Nurse do? What would John Proctor do, right? So they all had different actions on the card. So, and I gave them a template that said, role, action, and why. And then they had to come up with the wake-up order, because in One Night Ultimate Werewolf, each character in the village wakes up at a different time order. Like the mm. drunk is at a certain point because they switch cars, they don't know who they are. The right. insomniac is last. Um, right. So they changed the entire game. At, in June, after we collected the textbooks and all that stuff, they asked if they can play their witches and snitches games again. Again, that's this lesson was in October. Nobody's ever said to me, "This is remember that really great worksheet from October? Can I do that again?" Yeah, that's never happened. Another one yeah. was was um, flux. Card game Flux. Love that game. Right? I had students reskin that game and they made one about um, uh, different different parts of Asia, like Japanese Mm -hmm. history, Korean history. They looked, there were so many cards, it exceeded the textbook. They were like, (laughs) you know, there were originally these three kingdoms in the Korean peninsula. Can we have it three as the goal? I'm like, there were? Sure. You know, or one made a um, an action on the Great Wall of China, so no other player can steal your cards if the Great Wall of China is played in front of you. Yeah, These are, that those were eleven year olds doing that. There's something about, and I'm sure you've seen it, right? Because you're describing it. There's something about rolling a game out, and even more so, like you're describing, having kids modify a game. You can see in their eyes that there are parts of their brain that are firing off that don't fire off most of the rest of the day. And here's the thing. You, you, ju- you said something earlier that I say a lot as well. It just, why can't we do this all the time, you know, as classroom teachers? Because there, there clearly is something to this. And, 
every time I bring somebody new on that has a background in game-based learning, we always seem to come to the same conclusion. Um, so, but instead of pontificating, though, I, I really want to focus on your experience, right? So without me putting words into your mouth, what is it that you found so powerful about working with those kids that it led you to academia, right? Because you said that you were doing this stuff with middle school kids, and then that kind of puts you on a trajectory into academia where now you're trying to teach those methods, it sounds like, to other folks to kind of bring it into their own schools. So I guess, again, my question is, um, what really kind of brought you down that pathway? Um, you know, it's an interesting question because as I was bringing different games into the classroom, it made it more motivating for me as a teacher. I, you know, who wouldn't want to, it felt like I was working in a board game store, you know, uh, you know, like a, a board game cafe, yeah. you know, and you get like your, you get your cappuccino and slice of cake and then they'll get you started on playing, you know, uh, some really like, like wingspan or something. Yeah. They come and check on you. That's how my class felt. And it was like, wow, this is like really, you know, invigorating. Yeah, it's um, fun, isn't it? It's I fun. always say that every day I say that. I say, you know, guys, school can be fun. <laughs> and I sometimes say that to the teachers too, you know, because you can, like, if you're, if you're real creative, like you're describing, it's really, really fulfilling, you know? Yeah, I mean, I just kept getting, it's, it's I don't know. I just, well, I, I just kept continuing with my degree also. And, um, you have a question? Yes, yeah, yeah, go for it. Ask, not, to, yeah. not to interrupt. Um, yeah, no worries. Did you become almost like were you unique in the school that you were teaching in the sense that you were the one primarily doing game based learning? Um, and did other teachers like kind of come to you and ask like how do I do this or how are you incorporating like this into the class and almost in a way to almost emulate it or did they see the reward in it at all? Yes, yeah, so I was mainly the one doing it, but other other teachers would also know or want to do different types of games in the classroom. I know uh, the Earth Science teacher asked about Forbidden Island, which was created by Matt Leacock also, and uh, thinking about like tectonic plates moving and that sort of thing. Um, and to be, to be um, when I was hired at this school, uh, it was a regular public school, right? Just your regular public school. But they were, trained all their teachers on um, problem-based learning and project-based learning. So they were, that was already like out there. And I already saw like cooperative learning and project-based learning. It was already like your foot in the door for game-based learning and role-playing and that sort of thing. However, uh, I write about this in Gaming SEL. I did observe that some things shouldn't be role-played. Like, you know, not everything, just because you can doesn't mean you should in a classroom. Right, like any lesson really, right? Exactly right, yeah. And... um you know, you have to maintain uh, uh, an idea of safety with students. Like, even a game like Werewolf, you don't want people getting picked on, you know. I know kids right. naturally will play that at camp, right, or at sleepover with their friends, right? Like, never have I ever or something like that. But, you know, you have to, like, you have to establish all the boundaries. But the, um, did that, like, role kind of influence your continued education? Yeah, it did, because I kept, I was also at the time writing for Edutopia, which I still write for Edutopia. Um, and... I just kept covering things about games. I remember NPR came into my classroom, WNYC at the time, uh, because I was using this game called The Migrant Trail to teach about um, the uh, migrant crisis in the Sonoran Desert. And this was like 2017, right? 
our new issue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I was using it at the time to parallel the uh, Syrian refugee crisis. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. History teachers know everything just keeps happening, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Trends, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I was like, that's weird. They're, I mean, it's cool that they're coming in the class and they're putting me on like NPR and stuff, you know? But also, I'm just playing a, a short video game with students in the classroom, too. Like, but that says up. something, though, doesn't it? That says like, something about our educational system. Doesn't it, right? Like, I, It absolutely is. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I said this earlier. I, even for me, like, I, I like to think of myself as somebody that pushes boundaries. But again, like, I, this, is, this is what I really do think. We need more people like you at, at the higher acad- academia levels where the people teaching people how to teach getting away from the way we learned is really, really, really important. And thinking about things from the kids' perspectives. Again, like, I hate to say it, but I even think about this when it comes to essay writing. Like, for example, God, I hope my students aren't listening, but, you know, my kids are going to go in tomorrow and write, you know, a six or seven paragraph essay about something, right? And I do wonder, there are obvious skills to that and there are obvious organizational things that are super important when it comes to how to structure something like that. But I do wonder all the time, is that an antiquated thing? I mean, they're, they're on TikTok. They can absorb a minute of information. And by that, when that minute is over, they're onto something else. It's almost yeah. like essay writing is literally um, almost anathema, you know, to them on some level. So get, do you follow what I'm saying? Like, I think that, I, I do think that a game-based approach is almost timeless, I yes. guess. You know what I so, mean? So, yeah, based on that, right, and I, I still do this in my undergrad classes, and I think play is the most important. Mm-hmm. Games are great, but play is really where it's at, right? Uh, and Brian Sutton Smith, who, who is a, a famous play theorist, and he has a quote, it's not his quote, but his quote in his book, Ambiguity of Play, is, uh, golf can sometimes feel like work and research can sometimes feel like play. So I remember like podcasting in my classroom and students were moving around the sounds and audio and moving that around. That's playful. That that you could just, it would meet all the criteria, I suppose, of definitions of games. Like right. your goal, like you're doing now, right? Your goal is to produce something. But these are children making a podcast, right? Or video editing, Right. All of those are play activities, playful activities, and where you're contributing to an audience that's beyond the classroom. Whether we're calling that a game or not, I don't think matters. I think what's more important is that play is what drives learning. Play is what undergirds almost all educational psychology. So to remove that from the classroom is to remove any sort of good learning. Right. Yeah, I had the same experience um, adjuncting where... A lot of, uh, like, this is what they want you to do, right, is to give essays and talk about what, what they should have read. Um, but when I was in grad school um, in Millersville, I, had, I was talking to another graduate assistant, and he first introduced the idea to me of, you know, the way any animal, be it mammal or what have you, ha- in, in their complex social environments, like this, the, in the adolescence of play, brings about them practicing social behaviors and and learning mm-hmm. basic skills which then go into their survival so like 
yeah, we could continue doing like this rote memorization and standardized testing, but that's not innately teaching anything. It's just, you're, you know, I mean, we all know this, right? Like you're studying for this, the number, whereas if you incorporate something that's more um, tangible and, and you could work with, there you're leaving imprints for them to call back to and then, you know, put, put that in their day to day. There's a really good book. It's been out for a while, but you get it like at any library called Free to Learn. Mm-hmm. from Peter Gray. And um, he's an evolutionary psychologist. So there are a lot of different play theorists that have come along and play theory through through Cat uh, Loy and Huziga, but also um, Piaget and Vygotsky. They all write about play, right? But what's interesting about um, the later theorists, like Brian Sutton Smith and Peter Gray, is that they look at it from an evolutionary perspective. We are hardwired to play because if you think about what children do, like or adults, right? It doesn't stop, right? So hide and seek, right? Hide and seek and running and throwing, those all go back to our hunter-gatherer days. Yeah. And why why was Among Us so popular during the pandemic, right? Because it's really taking Playground, well, I mean, also it helps that it was freemium and across all platforms, right? Good timing too. But um, it really it really uh, takes playground play, a little bit of werewolf, right? Or mafia, a little bit of hide and seek and tag, and it's digital, right? Um, and that's important. I remember my son would play Minecraft with his friends uh, when they were on Zoom class, right? At the same time. But he wasn't building. They were playing hide-and-seek and tag in Minecraft. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> because we're hardwired for these things. And it's not just children. Piaget just says, you know, it just kind of extinguishes out. But why am I playing Assassin's Creed and, like, sneaking through, like, the brush to yeah. get to some castle without getting tagged, right? Right. <laughs> right. And, and that carries through really throughout our entire lives, right? I mean, I think of, yeah. for example, my neighbors who are in their 80s. They play... Um, Rummy Cube and all different kinds of card games, and they're unbelievably sharp. And I really do think it's because that element of play was never left for them. You know, they'll stay up until two a.m. I'm in bed by ten, yeah. And they're they're <laughs> like having a party next door with all their friends who are also in their eighties. You know, yucking it up, gaming. You know, so I definitely think that there's something to that. You know, um, yeah. And I think from a play perspective, yeah, everything is anytime you again, anytime you can engender play in the classroom. Everybody's winning. So if it's like a quiz that's dressed up to look like a game, it's fine. It's play, right? Yes. I think another word like gamification um, seems to be like a, a, a seems to be like you know carrot at the end of the stick for some people yeah. in the gaming community don't like that like taking that those elements out. But hey, I have a Peloton and I have an Apple Watch and I do follow it. But you have to think though the activity itself has to be rewarding. You can't just right. slap stickers on it. So the dressing it up part is super important, right? And again, like it's not, it's not, sometimes I think people hear that and they think it's almost disingenuous. Like it's, you're almost like playing a trick on somebody. I personally don't think that's the case. I just find, I agree with you. Ultimately, here, I was shitting on, even though I shouldn't use that word, but I was shitting on essay writing, right? Uh-huh. But look, when I gamify stuff like that, so for example, when we're rolling out our Congress of Vienna simulation 
And if I normally said to a kid, hey, like you really need to go home and do some research on, uh, you know, Clemens von Metternich tonight, you know, and I need that tomorrow. They don't want to do that. But mm-hmm. the second that you're playing, the second that you know you're going to be engaged in this conference where you want to get your laws passed, I don't even have to ask them. They just do it anyway. And they'll yeah. come in the next day. Oh, Mr. F, you should see what I researched last night, you know? So I, I I completely agree with you. The idea of dressing something up, it's almost like making the essay more meaningful than just, I'm going to turn this thing in for a grade. If you give it a practical purpose, then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it really matters. And I guess in life it does too, right? You know, whether we're at our job or we're with our families or whatever the case may be, you know, the second that you take some kind of activity and make it meaningful, I, I think that definitely matters, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to scoff at word gamification, but hey, there's Duolingo and there's Peloton and there's Starbucks, there's Uber. Why do you think people scoff at that term? Um, I think because of the... Well, it's because it's it seems to... There's a, a lot of reasons. Oftentimes, it can be done poorly. You know, it can be a sticker economy. It could be extrinsic, but people respond to extrinsic and intrinsic. It's not like one or the other, really. But I think different children of different ages respond differently to things, too, as you know. Um, I think, um, you know, it's got like this commercial thing to it as well, a commerce thing. But another issue, though, with gamification that I think, I mean, I can't speak for all game designers and all that. But it's like taking an element of of the art of making a game without the game itself seems kind of like inauthentic. Yeah. You know, I don't I have an Xbox and I don't go back to get all the trophies when I'm done playing a game. But some people might, you know. I think I think uh it really what matters the most is that whatever the activity is must be playful. It's hard to define fun. It's also impo- like play yeah, is defined by yeah. it's subjective, right? Yeah, but that's okay. Agreed. Think, yeah. Oh, and and when my teaching, I remember I had students play a game called Mission US from uh, a PBS game about history, and then I showed them Twine, which creates like interactive fiction stories about really easy, and I I I had to write like late passes for students to leave my class. <laughs> who professed right. that they didn't like writing. Yeah. And they were writing hundreds of passages, literally. Yeah. Um, but it's really like getting to know your students as well. I remember I had a student who struggled to read and write, and it was in her IEP, which was quite long at the time. And I found out just by talking to the student, like, <laughs> that yeah. she was into fan fiction and she was into creepy pasta at the time. <laughs> which were like these like short form fan fiction horror stories, right? That's like where like Slender Man stories like mm. right, right? And I remember I was like, well, for your assignment, for your writing assignment, why don't you write and submit one to Creepypasta? And she wrote one and it was about like zombies and that sort of thing. But there were, it was also, she she wrote it, it was like three pages long. She stood up in front of the class and read the entire thing. And then she explained the um, the metaphor, like the like being chased and hunted. It actually um, was a, a story about being on the U.S. Mexican border. Yeah, and high level. That's a high level stuff that yeah. you're describing yeah. there. And 
that was not addressed in her other classes. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, tapping into students' passions and interests. I remember bringing Minecraft in the classroom and only maybe five people would be into Minecraft at the mm-hmm. time, right? You know, I mean, you're going to get a few Dungeons and Dragons players in each class. You're going to have a few people who are into anime or Marvel movies. Not everybody. Right. No, that I, I hear you. I mean, everybody's got different interests. And I like... Uh, because you're also describing differentiation of instruction, which I think is really, really important. You know, and again, it is kind of surprising. I think some teachers, again, like I'm not, I'm not trying to slander secondary school teachers, but I do think that sometimes teachers get so immersed in their own content that they forget that the most important thing is the kid. Like you kind of have to know something about the kid, and once you know something about them, you are able to tap into like what you're describing. So yeah, and I, I just. Like calling back to um, your one of your first questions about educational technology and my yeah. students at the university level, I very much explain it to them as survival mode, reflection, and creative mode. So you could listen to a podcast and then make a podcast with the tools that are quite playful. You can play a game, then you could, you know, reskin the game using index cards or on scratch or some free software like twine or something you can i mean this is the cycle that kids normally do these are where the eyeballs are my my son has a youtube channel where he does animation mm-hmm. right so he's like drawing it and creating it but he also has been using ai like dolly to create characters and see what they look like in real life and then it publishes them on youtube and then you get feedback, you know, and I think it's about play more than game. It's always that, right? Um, and I think as, as long as we understand what students like and what they're interested and passionate about and can tap that in and connect that to their learning, I think that's a win, right? Very much so. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I, you know, I'll be really honest. I never thought of it the way that you do. Like in terms of, I never thought about the play element. I always go to the game, right? But I never, I never thought about the fact that really how important play is when it comes to whatever the game kind of is. It's really, a, in its simplest form, it's really about social interaction, you know, especially the classroom, right? Kids are playing something. They're having fun. Um, and whatever it is that you're asking them to do, it's almost like that motivation of it'll probably grow, you know, in terms of getting whatever the task is completed, you know? Yeah. At least that's sure. what I think that's what I'm hearing. So, yeah. So that's why I, from early on, I, <laughs> seems like ancient history now, like when I started writing about games, right? <laughs> and, um, well, two things about that. One is, um, Project-based learning is very much like a game when done right, if, it's, if you're engendering play and playfulness. It has a lot of the qualities of a game. Uh, and that's why games like Roblox and Fortnite has a creative mode yeah. uh, and Minecraft, right? So there's that. The other thing is I've always stayed in my zone here, my niche of games and learning. Um, and that is because it's easy not to. <laughs> you know, in ed tech land, it's like, you know, buzzword after buzzword, right? Like, oh, yeah. Like, remember the metaverse? Remember, you know, VR, AR, and XR? Now we're chat GPT and AI. There's always like, something. 
It's always something. And I'm like, and it's always negative. You ever notice that it's always turned into a negative. It's always something that we should be fearful of as opposed to looking at it as a positive, you know, something mm-hmm. that could be used as a tool like anything else. It, and again, hearkening back to, you know, the Greeks being terrified of writing, you know, because it's just going to make people dumber and you're not going to remember anything. I've, I've been, I don't know about you, but I've been in so many of those conversations in the last 20 years. Oh yeah, tons. And I mean, I think about, well, like Google search, Wikipedia. Oh my God, Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. oh my God, don't even get me started on Wikipedia. That was <laughs> hours of my life devoted to meetings about how it was the devil, you know? Right? <laughs> For sure. So... Let me ask you, because again, I'm just looking at the time. I feel like we could probably do this for hours. We'll have to bring you on again at some point because I always I always find that the second interview is even better because it's almost like we know each other now and the audience knows you. But I have to ask you, um, I know it's going to be a silly question, but what's it like being a writer in terms of writing about games and play? Because, I mean, you have quite an extensive library of things that you've written what's that like what's that feel like like do you feel like like do you feel like you're really (laughs) contributing to society on some i mean i think you do but i don't know how you feel about it no that's a good okay so the first part is um yes i'd love to come back with my co-author tracy fullerton oh that'd be awesome when her new book is out um that'd be great uh the second thing is um writing is like torture there's actually a the comic (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I shared it on Instagram the other day from Asher Perlman. I think that's the person. It's a, he writes for the New Yorker sometimes. Right. And it's like uh, a cleaning truck outside. And it was like, here's the deal. You you tell me that I have to write something and I will clean your entire house. <laughs> <laughs> very true. <laughs> it's um, just very time. It's so time consuming, you know? It is, it is. <laughs> so I think there. The first time, okay, so writing, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like tough, you know? I think, if anything, though, to make it more playful and all of that, to me, when I wrote my first book, and even like when I still write for Edutopia, right, I like doing like this sort of thing, talking to people, and I realized that when you talk to people and you like take notes on what they say, well, that's a pretty decent amount of words. And if you keep doing that and you find some of the research to support it and all of that, but when I wrote my first book, I realized that games and learning and game-based learning, this is like 2015, 2014, was kind of a small group. It still is kind of a small group, really, right? And yes. I, I, I wrote a book kind of like connecting the dots and sharing with educators what their work was. But I still felt like an imposter, that sense of imposter syndrome, because... How so? Well, I'm a, I was a history teacher, and my degree, I was getting a degree in uh, educational technology at the time. I didn't go through a game design program. I don't, I'm not like, a, I didn't have that whole like history of it. That other people who at the time, I remember watching Frontline and they were talking about like the school quest to learn. And they were talking about um, World of Warcraft and research on that. I remember saying to my wife, like, I could write a dissertation on World of Warcraft. That's, just, that's something I could do. And it's in my dissertation. <laughs> um, Did you play World of Warcraft? I was not a World of Warcraft player. I, st- I, I actually studied three teachers in my dissertation, which became a book called Game-Based Learning in Action. One of the teachers, Peggy Sheehy, I used World of Warcraft in her classroom when she was teaching The Hobbit and students' own personal hero's journeys. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. 
And um, that was a long time ago at this point. So she was like really early on with that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I felt that at first, right? But uh, as I've been writing, I've been working with other organizations um, like UNESCO, MGIAP, which is the Mahatma Gandhi Institute for Education and Sustainable Programs. And I've done a lot of projects with them. And, you know, this idea of games being treated like novels and film and then developing curricula around them uh, and then having, I guess, doing more of the writing and more of my own research help to build confidence. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think right now I feel like I can write more with, um, with an opinion. <laughs> you know, it's less yeah. like writing about what other people are doing, you know. More no, like that mix, ma- mixtape approach, I suppose. No, that makes that makes complete sense. I com- I really do understand what what you mean, and I and I do mean this. I mean, you know, I know that you're saying that you feel like an imposter, but I want to go back to something I said earlier. I wish there were more people like you. I'm I mean, teaching you know a, about these concepts because again, anybody I've ever brought onto the show that uses some of these tools, whether just talking about play or games or simulations or whatever in the classroom, it always just seems like the students win. You know what I mean? And and what I mean by win is they don't dread showing up. Like they enjoy going to class. And I think that's really, really valuable. Um, Yeah. And I think the teacher as well enjoys. Oh yeah. Enjoys coming to class because the teacher is also engaging in a playful activity. Yes. And it doesn't, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was amongst a group and I, the, the, my dissertation in a book, it was like, became like this Facebook group, right? And we were all these game using teachers. It's called the, um, we renamed it. I think it's called the uh, Playful Learning Alliance now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time we called it the tribe. I didn't name it. I think it kind of came from a Ken Robinson chapter in one of his books like finding your tribe. Right. And, you know, a lot of us opened up our classrooms to game developers as well to come into our classroom and try with our students. That also piques students' interest. You know, they want to be beta testers and yeah, things like that. Yeah. I also think, too, that the more uh, teachers are can experience some of the things that you're describing and even some of the stuff that I've seen in my own classroom, it can be really eye-opening. And I know this is going to sound silly, but... Um, I mean, I run my school's Model UN team, and oh. one of one of my uh, friends that I oh yeah, absolutely oh it's yeah. amazing. I wish I did it as a kid, um, but I you know it's very powerful because you know like I have a really I mean a, a pretty close friend that I work with at the school I'm at now, and he kind of came with me to chaperone you know the trip, mm-hmm. and his mind was blown you know as he was sort of walking around, and he's like wait wait a minute they're doing all this research they're devoting all this time to doing this, but they're not being graded. They're just doing it for the sake of doing it. They're doing it because there's something about the activity is making that brain fire off in a certain way. And then sure enough, when we got back, he, he designed, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. He designed a dating game, (laughs) but, but bear with me, bear with me. It was basically like a speed dating game about the abolitionist movement, where essentially you have this really famous abolitionist and you're playing a particular character from the era and you have your own beliefs about getting rid of slavery or not getting rid of it. And Uh you kind of speed date where half the class is all playing that particular role. I think it was um, off the top of my head. I think it was Garrison, I think, or I, I can't remember the exact 
character. But the point is, is that he gamified this lesson that he would normally just kind of give a review sheet about. And he's like, oh my God, they had so much fun, you know, because he was saying it to me. And again, just, just point, point being, um, getting that kind of experience and getting a chance to see what a simulation or a game or play looks like in practice. And then, you know, it can inspire you to kind of use it in your classroom, you know? So, yeah. Um, and I guess, I don't know, on that note, um, Matt, just because we're, we're getting close to our time limit here, um, do you have anything in particular kind of going on? Because I know you just got back from sabbatical. Um, so what do you have going on in the next couple of months? Oh, back to teaching. Yep. Like that. <laughs> so back um, to the grind. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, again, I, I, my class even here in, in university, uh, we model how it would look in uh, – you know, in a K twelve classroom, right? So, right, plenty of, plenty of games and things like that too. keeps keeps things fun. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I'm just waiting to hear back on edits on our manuscript, that that sort of thing. And uh, we have another book also coming out soon. I don't know how soon, but it's uh, this one I could talk about. It's uh, a it's a book I'm editing with um, Camilla Zamboni, who's a, a games and Italian studies professor. And uh, Will Merchant, who is a professor of uh, statistics and research methods here at UNC, and mm-hmm. uh, it's about micro micro tabletop role playing games. So it's uh, going to be open access and free to teachers through Carnegie cool. Mellon's ETC Press. Um, we have about fifty plus chapters so far. Oh wow! Basically, the games are a couple of pages long, so it's not D and D. We were inspired by the uh, one-page game jam on Itch that took place last year and the year before. Um, if you look up Lasers and Feelings, which is a, a free one-page, literally one-page, and you could play it in just a few minutes with some dice. And uh, we were like thinking, well, how, what would that look like really light in the classroom, you know, in different content areas? So we put out a call, and uh, we got a whole bunch of academics, teacher, classroom teachers, game designers uh, that contributed, not just chapters. That was the other thing. I was like, there are a lot of like edited books out there. And there are books that will say, this is how you can do games in the classroom. But where are the games? Right. You're <laughs> you know, so like, right. Yes. Right? I know exactly like the, what you mean. And the learning curve, like, like, of course, like D&D, great, sure. Or maybe reskin that. But like a campaign is like so long. And, and like, challenging. And know? challenging all around, right? And... I wanted something like so, like this is so light, you know? So, um, yeah, each chapter is going to be like a, a few pages of a game and then a few pages of what we call like the corollary material. Like, yeah. what, what, you know, how, what is tips for using the game in the classroom or yeah. rolling it out or what does it teach? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Kelly and I, I think we could probably speak to that, even though, again, uh, it'll probably have to wait for another episode. But yeah, I think that. We war game a lot, you know, with painted miniatures and things like that. And I don't know, like, I think that when people think of games, it's almost like many people feel like they have to be complicated. Like, if yeah. it's not complicated, it's not worth playing. So, again, yeah. there, to me, like, there's nothing better than getting a set of war game rules that are literally on one page. And it takes two seconds to learn how to play. And then you, and then you do it, you know, and you could always add to it later, you know. So well, I can leave you with this last thought then. Yeah, uh, please tr- do. Yeah, so I'm teaching a game design course again this spring. It's a doc-level class. And uh, I, I do use Tracy Fullerton's book, Game Design Workshop. And um, 
I asked her, like, you know, for some advice the first time the course ran around, you know, because she teaches the game design program at USC. Right. And her advice was, let the activities breathe. Hmm. Like, less is more, you know? So give them time. So I, I give them plenty of time to paper prototype in class. I think escape room games, by the way, or like breakout EDU, those are interesting mm-hmm. examples that can really like get teachers interested in games. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Letting the activity breathe, having it simple, right? That's, I think, what attracted us to these micro tabletop role-playing games. There's a, a book I have too. It's in the other room. I don't remember who edited it. But it's it's in a regular bookstore, you know. It's like it's like a hundred or something like micro RPGs. They're but they're not for education, right? Yeah. Of course, there's learning and everything, right? Sure. Um, but I think something so light and quick and easy that just brings out conversation and play and just gets minds sparked and going. Yeah, it's perfect, right? And yeah, I do. I do think that, and I think you're right. I think on that note. I feel like I learned so much. I I, I don't want to speak for Kelly here, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, this is great. I'm looking there forward is a to a round two. <laughs> We're gonna have a quiz, Matt. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna email us some questions. Yes. <laughs> In all honesty, man, yeah, this was great. I knew it would be a lot of fun, and and again, you know, I always try to be a little careful here, just because, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to sound. Uh, I don't know, like we're all perched somewhere in the ivory tower and everybody else is dumb. Like I, I don't want to sound that way or anything like that, but I do think that the work that you're doing and so many of the names that you had mentioned, I think it's all really important because ultimately, like I was saying earlier, I think the more people in this field that I speak to, um, I just wish that there were other ways of getting even more information out there where teachers wouldn't feel so, overwhelmed by the idea of using even if it's just like one playful game over the course of the year. So the modules and things that you're writing, I think are really going to be helpful in terms of destroying some of that mystique, even though that's maybe a a very strong word, but (laughs) you know what I mean? So, um, and on that note, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Matthew Farber, where can somebody look you up? so to speak, on the internet if they wanted to find your books or uh, find out a little bit more about some of the work that you've done? Yeah, so um, my uh, website is a great starting point, matthewfarber.com. I try to keep up to date on everything there, books and papers and presentations and that sort of thing. Um, And on there are other links. You can find me on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I'm on... uh, Still on X, <laughs> formerly Twitter. <laughs> yeah, at Matthew Farber. Uh, you know, I just um, <laughs> I'm often though on more fun sites like you know Instagram and yeah, that's where we are too. Yeah, so. yeah. I think we're all just waiting for uh, X to die off. <laughs> yeah, it's all a bit ridiculous. Yeah, it is. You know, I don't know. I <laughs> I have a friend that works at um, Meta and like you mm-hmm. know the, the VR or and I was watching the meta, it was like something a couple of months ago. It was sort of like what Apple does, you know, and Google. And they had uh, Mark Zuckerberg come out, but then they had each of the different teams come out. Yeah. And, I, and what really, my takeaway was like, I know like Facebook had issues, you know. Yeah. But they're a real company. Like, 
Like I was watching yeah. it, like, oh yeah, there's you know, there's their VR, there's like Instagram, there's WhatsApp, there's all these different products. I'm like, it struck me as like a real company. I don't know what's going on with like whatever Twitter was, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's all Elon, crazy Elon yeah. Musk, you know. <laughs> I know Smoking I'm, I'm reading on Joe the, Rogan's show, you know. I'm reading the book. He's up. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Walter Isaacson book. I'm reading it now, and I'm not like. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. The products, I think, are more interesting to me. Like the story of SpaceX, the story yeah. of Tesla. Honestly, I, mean, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if we're still here in a thousand years or if there's some some cataclysmic thing that happens to humans and somebody eventually kind of shows up and is able to dig some information up. I honestly think that they would think things like Twitter, not yeah, like X and Elon Musk and Apple – it almost like feels like a religion, like a cult. Like if you've ever met Apple people and like talked to them, it's all yeah, very I strange blog, to me. I follow a blog called The Cult of Mac. I think yeah, it's, called. it's like, yeah. they're like churches. <laughs> like you here, I mean, there you go. Like uh, another book title is like, I'm just, you know, walk by one of those stores, how people line up, you know, to drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. I personally, granted, I'm doing this on a MacBook. So who the hell am I to talk? But it does read to me as very weird. So Yeah, I know. I mean, I remember a while ago teaching, like, some students would be like Android, some would be like Apple, you know? Yeah. And I was like, you know, it seemed for a bit like that. those are the rock stars of the generation, but, you know, what do, what do I know? I'm a big Swifty, so. I'm <laughs> <laughs> the Taylor right. Swift cult. <laughs> I can feel like we're going into the rabbit hole here, which I'm very excited about, but at the same time, like, I got to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you guys, but... <laughs> Preparing oh, oh, for snow tomorrow. <laughs> all right. So this is sort of a tangent, but... Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Taylor Swift. Yes. And the alternate reality games with fans. Yeah. Right? Like every like reading into her last outfit she wore was green. So does that mean that the reputation version is going to come out? And yeah. a lot of that is very intentional. Like the way she puts number 13 in different things. Yeah, uh, she has a lot of power. It's quite interesting. A lot of well, power, but that, she's running the biggest alternate reality game that very, is not going to take down democracy. Yeah, it's very <laughs> yeah. yeah you're, you you you're certainly on to something. I mean, the bottom That's line funny. is like <laughs> they're so think about it. I'll, I'll put it into a different you know a, a different sort of or take it from a different vantage point. It's just I don't know. There's just the music industry is in such disrepair that there's really only a dozen acts anymore that people. I mean, don't get me wrong. People go see live music like me, but yeah. you know, Metallica, Taylor Swift, Beyonce. There's not many groups that can kind of bring people together the way they do. And yeah, they have a lot of power. And maybe we're all living in a simulation. And but when you're Taylor looking, Swift runs it, when you're looking into like what she's wearing or anything, like that's like QAnon on level. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> all right. Before we say anything else that could get us all in trouble, <laughs> I think that this is where we're going to wrap. <laughs> the later Seriously, though, I know. <laughs> Seriously, though, Matthew, um, you have to come on again. Yes, absolutely. This was a blast. Absolute blast. And Kelly, I appreciate you co-hosting tonight. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, I'd love yeah. being here. Indeed. And uh, yeah, so for everybody else out there listening, um, not, you know, I always say like never, never sure exactly when an episode is going to drop. I mean, just because we have such a backlog of episodes and that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, there's just a lot of people that either are interested in coming on or want to come on or, you know, if I, if I ask, um, they're like, yeah, let's do it. So we'll have to see when this episode is going to drop. I just want to thank everybody for listening and 
Kelly McManus, I hope you have a good night. Matthew, I hope you have a good night. And I think that's it. See you all later, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided Gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore NextGen underscore Inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.